I'm Talib Vizram and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. This week, we'll hear from a filmmaker behind some of the most gripping shows on TV right now, and we'll take a look at Hollywood's portrayal of cops through the lens of Sylvester Stallone's career. This is your Fast Break. During quarantine, a popular pastime has been to watch copious amounts of TV. Not that there needed to be a pandemic to force us to binge on shows. Joining us today is someone we can thank for her work on some of those shows. Maggie Kiley has directed a variety of TV series, including The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and Riverdale. And she recently signed a major exclusive multi-year deal at Warner Brothers Television. Welcome to the show, Maggie. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Let's first talk about the show that just came out called Dirty John, The Betty Broderick Story, where you were the director and co-executive producer. How did you become involved with it? Alexandra Cunningham is the creator and executive producer of the Dirty John series. And this is the second installment in the show. An executive producer, Jessica Rhodes, who works with Alex, reached out to me to see if I might be interested um, in coming on this season because this season would be a complete approach to a new story. So when I first kind of sat down with Alex and heard from her how she was planning to approach this story, which is a very was a very sensationalized double homicide from the late 80s, mm-hmm. I was really excited at the possibility of getting to come in and help unpack kind of the why of a story like this. Sure. Well, I remember listening to the podcast. Is that the first season is based on the podcast? Is that right? Yeah. So the first season is was based on that podcast. This season is based on a different crime that happened in the late '80s in Southern California. So it's a it's a completely new story, new set of characters. I wanted a husband and a family. Dan needed a wife that could wait on him. I would have been treated better if I'd been a dog and served my master. I'm amazed it only took one bullet to kill Dan Broderick. I was married for 16 years. Then he turns 40 and he's walking out with a 19-year-old and a sports car. I've been robbed of my children. Court order. How am I supposed to see my kids? Dan had me committed to a psych ward. I'm not the crazy one, he is. So before you started directing TV, you made a few smaller indie films. How does your stylistic and creative approach shift between independent filmmaking and TV shows that are produced by major studios? I think, you know, when I was first starting out, I I didn't go to film school. I came up as an actor. And initially, when I transitioned from acting to directing, I participated in a program at the American Film Institute called the Directing Workshop for Women. So I I didn't have a lot of film school. I had a few weeks. So for me on my early movies, it was a very sort of intuitive, you know, sort of feeling my way through it process. You know, I Uh made small movies. I was able to fortunately cast actors who I had relationships with. You know, I got to cast Bill Macy and Jesse Eisenberg and Allison Janney. Some pretty incredible people came to work for me for no money, but... I think, you know, in those films, you're working with a a smaller set of resources and ultimately the person who you keep going back to would be just your producing partner and yourself. 
when I started moving into television, it was, it took me a little while to adjust to the idea of, you know, really giving over to a showrunner, taking in everything that they have to say about this story, how they see this story, and then finding my moment to sort of take the baton and move it forward into sort of the visual and the performance and the next phase. So from 2018 to 2019, women made up about 15% of directors on the top 200 films and 33% on indie films. Aside from the obvious solution of hiring more women to direct, what do you think are some of the ways to improve these numbers and eventually get to a place where we no longer have to even say female director? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. You know, it's unfortunate that the statistics have been so low for so long. The program I did at AFI started because the number was right around 7%, and it has not moved much since the 70s, which is hard to believe given that there is so much uh, female and diverse talent. You know, I personally have benefited from diversity programs, programs that the studios have designed to sort of educate themselves on female directors or maybe directors who are lesser known. But it does take sort of the larger executive arm, you know, taking bigger swings sooner and nurturing younger women and diverse directors at a point in their career where they could benefit from being sort of brought into the studio system. You know, it's unfortunate that we need a program, you know, to get you in. Yeah. And I, for one, having done, I think I've done I did four, maybe five of them. And by about the fourth program, I was sort of rolling my eyes and screaming to the heavens, do I really need to do another program before I can get a shot? But at this point, if that's what it takes to sort of change the makeup of who we're putting behind the camera, then I think it's worth it. And I agree. I think the hope is that eventually you'll you'll naturally be pulling from a pool of diverse directors. So you don't have to specifically go out and target a female director or target a diverse director because you will naturally be receiving submissions from all of those areas. And so one of these mentorship programs was run by Ryan Murphy. Is that right? Yes, Ryan launched an initiative called the HALF Initiative. I think it was about four years ago when he discovered that even in his own hiring pool, he really didn't have a lot of women and people of color directing his shows. So he created a diversity program that I think has proven to be really quite successful. He cast a very wide net to both film schools and just within the sort of entertainment industry to pull in directors who haven't had a great deal of experience but would benefit from that. And, you know, you're brought into Ryan Murphy Television, which is, you know, an extraordinary environment. They're making incredible content. You are mentored by a director there. And through the process of being on those sets, I think you gain a tremendous amount of knowledge and confidence. And how does it feel to have worked on multiple projects now with Ryan Murphy and Greg Berlanti, some of the most prolific television producers in Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, I both Ryan Murphy and Greg Berlanti, I think, are such extraordinary examples of creators who are using their platform to create a, a world on screen that that is more representative of the world that we live in. And I'm impressed by both of them in that I was certainly not the first nor the last person who had, who was encouraged to sort of grow and step up and step forward within those companies. You know, Greg, I've watched so many people who've worked 
worked on Greg's shows, you know, transition from smaller roles, you know, script supervising, stepping into directing, stepping into editing, um, mm -hmm. and Ryan as well really promotes within the company. And I think that's such a great incentive for any creative artist if you know that you're you know, you're working for an incredibly successful showrunner, but you know that they're they're willing to sort of nurture you along the way. And I, you know, I love all the shows that they both have are very fun to be a part of. Sure. So earlier you mentioned that you started as an actor. So, uh, you know, one of your first mentors, I think, was William H. Macy at NYU. And and you started work at the Atlantic Theatre Company. How has your former acting training informed your directing career? You know, I think my my time at Atlantic and my many years pounding the pavement in New York City um, <laughs> definitely helped me in that, you know, working with actors is something I love and I feel really at ease for the most part. You know, when I engage in a conversation with an actor, it feels like this is someone I know and can really relate to having been in those shoes. I still sure. feel like I use a big part of my actor brain when I'm directing. Bill Macy and, and David Mamet and Clark Gregg and, and a lot of the sort of mentors I had at Atlantic, you know, really helped me shape my thinking as an artist because so much of the work at Atlantic is focused on, you know, doing the work and sort of showing up on time and putting in the effort so that when opportunity does present itself, you're, you're kind of ready to hit the ground running. Yeah. Well, what an incredible list of people to have as mentors. So do you have any pieces of advice you could share with either aspiring filmmakers or people working in creative fields, especially now as we're all transitioning to a new normal through the pandemic? Yeah, you know, a, a good friend of mine, a, a very successful director, actually once told me that I was um, quietly relentless. I was like, first I was a little offended and then I was sort of like complimented. And I thought, you know, that does pretty much sum me up. And I think my advice to an, any aspiring creative artist at this moment, especially, is that you have to keep going. You know, you have to find a way every day to further your craft, whether it be sitting down to write or, you know, thinking about what that next movie is or sending three emails to people who you're in invested in a relationship with. I think waiting for the perfect project to show up or waiting for the phone to ring, it just doesn't happen, you know? Yeah. And I think the more I've, I've taken it on myself to find a way to keep going, like those tiny movies that I started out my career with, it's it was clear that no one was giving me an episode of television. No studio movie was coming, you know, not knocking yeah. at my door, but making a small movie and bringing in people I knew helped me continue to grow and move forward. So, you know, it's certainly not easy, especially in a time like this one, but I think you have to hustle at every turn. Relentless paid off. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess. As a result of COVID-19, specific health and safety measures have to be put in place now before film productions can resume. So how do you see new filming protocols affecting the way you approach directing? Well, I mean, it's certainly a lot to process. I certainly appreciate all of the time and energy that has gone into determining what the sort of safest version of set would be. I think, you know, the idea of, of separating different teams makes sense. It does seem like, for me, it does seem like this sort of regular testing is 
pretty much the best, most effective version. For someone who's spent, you know, the last few years working in television where so much of your job as a director is making your day and moving quickly and covering a, a huge amount of ground in a short amount of time. I do think that production schedules will have to certainly be longer or, you know, the material will have to be simpler. It just, it seems like we're going to have to really shift, shift it down to sort of what's essential, which isn't a bad thing, you know, but I think that's, that's a, certainly a big part of it. Along with Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story, can you tell us a little bit more about some other projects you've been working on recently? Yes. Well, right before the quarantine started, I was in production on a pilot in New York um, called The Brides from Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who's the creator and showrunner of Riverdale and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and Katie Keene. And we were on, we had shot five days, so we were kind of right in the midst wow. of it. Yeah. Um, but obviously it made sense, you know, to pause. So my hope would be that once it's safe to resume, we'd be able to go back and complete that pilot. You know, a pilot is is a sales tool. It's sort of that first taste of what a show can be. Yeah. So not getting to to fully execute it is, is frustrating, but of course I understand. And then beyond that, you know, part of the benefit to this pause for me is that I'm not I'm not on set, I'm not out of town, so I have the time to write and read and develop. And part of my time at Warner Brothers is looking to other projects that I can help sort of shepherd into, into the world. So there's space for that, which is nice. So has the pilot kind of just frozen? It's kind of just on hold for the, for the time being? Yeah, it's, it's very much on hold. It's, it's still in contention, but it's just, it's sort of in a holding pattern at the moment. Right, wow. So, you know, big question here, but what would be your dream gig? Is there anything you haven't done yet that you're really interested in doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I want to go full Patty Jenkins. I want to <laughs> go make bigger movies. I think, you know, I love the work that David Fincher has done and movies that are big and bold and, and can draw in a large audience. I also spent a little time on solo a star wars story a few years ago and huh. you know sort of began you know just got to know kathy kennedy and lawrence kasdan and and being on that set you know certainly sparked a, a desire in me because i think what's so wonderful about those movies is that even though they're huge and they're taking place in a big world at the core it's so much about character and the storytelling is so character driven so for sure i have a star wars movie on my vision board well, uh, I'd be excited to see if, if something comes of that. Um, and, and in the shorter term, I, I watched the trailer for Betty Broderick uh, and I'm intrigued to see how the story unfolds. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Maggie. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll be right back after this short break. For almost a month, protesters have been lining the streets against police brutality. Amid the calls to defund the police, activists have also called on production companies and streaming platforms to make some changes. The reality show Cops was cancelled a couple of weeks ago, while A&E decided to discontinue its reality series Live PD, and HBO Max pulled Gone with the Wind, but will later replace it with context and framing. Joining me today is Fast Company staff editor Joe Berkowitz to explain the cinematic significance of cops as seen through the career of Sylvester Stallone. 
thanks for coming on the show, Joe. Thanks, Talib. So Sylvester Stallone is sort of an iconic tough guy actor who's most well known for playing Rocky and Rambo. But you wrote that he's played more cop roles in his career. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how he actually played a few counter cop roles too? Sure. You know, I, I had been thinking about looking at uh, Stallone movies like Cobra and Copland sort of through this uh, prism of our current re-examination of police as an institution and how that's been reflected in entertainment. And I just started noticing how many times he's played either a cop or a cop-adjacent character. And it's a literal dozen times, it turns out. There are the, the popular movies like Demolition Man and Tango and Cash, where he plays cops with improbable names like John Spartan and Ray Tango. And uh, then there are the two times he played cops on TV shows in the 70s, which were uh, Police Story and Kojak. Right around that same time uh, in the 70s, he also played some of his earlier roles were about as far from a cop as you could get. And in a different way than playing like a hitman, which is something he did a couple times later on in his career. He played an anti-war radical in this movie from 1973 called No Place to Hide. And in the movie, he, he, like, he wants to blow up the offices of companies who do business with dictators. <laughs> and uh, I say in the article that it seems like the kind of thing that would get him in on an Antifa watch list if he made that movie now. <laughs> and then, yeah, a few, few years later, he played a union leader who starts a riot in this movie called F-I-S-T. I forget what that stands for, but I imagine it's kind of forced into that acronym. Well, that's a pretty drastic shift. So what were some of those first conservative cop roles? Well, uh, one thing that's interesting is before he even gets there or around the same time, he's also in the first Rambo movie. And I don't know how well you remember First Blood or if you've even seen it, but... I had kind of forgot this. His enemy in that movie basically are these corrupt cops in a, in a small town who he runs afoul of and uh, dispatches with uh, non-lethal means and cunning and whatnot. So yeah, that was some of the first real cop visibility in a Stallone movie in a major way. But the first conservative cop roles he played himself, there was the one that kind of set the tone was this in this movie called Nighthawks. He's like a gritty street cop named Deke Da Silva. Uh, and that's in 1981. That kind of set the tone, but he didn't really come into his own as a cop until Cobra in 1986, which is a movie he wrote and stars in and had a lot of control over. And I think that's his attempt to make like a Rocky or Rambo kind of figure, like just this one name that people know, but for a renegade street cop. So let's take a closer look at Cobra. You called it cinematic glamour shots for cops. What does that mean? And how does it play almost like a parody in today's world? Well, I mean, he is like a cartoon character. You know, he's just all decked out in leather. He has this old uh, Mercury from 1950 and the license plate says A-W-S-U-M, awesome 50, like a little kid would do. <laughs> he's always wearing leather gloves. He has a matchstick in his mouth and he's just all kick ass all the time. He's like who you send in when normal police tactics just ain't going to cut it. And he works on something called the zombie squad, which is kind of ill-defined, but I think they say it's just, yeah, he does the things the other cops won't. Yeah, when we meet him, the opening scene, he comes in and uh, defeats this maniac in a grocery store 
who mainly just shoots up fruit for the first couple minutes we see them, but then, yeah, he does take a random hostage's life. Cobra comes in, makes short work of, of the guy, and then we see him take the hand of an attractive lady and help her up, and the look in her eyes is pure, like, oh my god, this is my hero. It's just... <laughs> You know, at a time when, admittedly, yeah, crime was was well up in the mid-80s. During a time like that, this is just positioning, you know, what if cops, what if they're like the biggest heroes you've ever seen? And it's just glamorizing them in, in every way. Well, audiences today would understandably view that quite differently. But was there any way a 1985 audience would have been able to see any nuance in that scene? I'm, I'm sure, you know, irony existed back then and i'm sure you know like um coffee shop philosophers existed back then and people were you know going to this movie to make fun of it but i think that was probably the bare minimum i think for the most part uh, people just took it at face value like yes cobra please like defeat these bad guys for me that's what i need i i was reading some reviews to see how it was received in the time and I think it was Gene Siskel was talking about it and he kind of like sized it up as appropriately cheesy. But even he seemed really wrapped by that opening scene and saw nothing wrong with it. And so, yeah, even people who were a little more likely to cut themselves on the rough edges of this movie, it seemed like just the time of it and uh, the framing of it sailed right across the finish line. Wow. Well, the style of Cobra is explosively loud and direct, which helps amplify the main character's unorthodox methods. But you wrote that it's the small, quiet moments that expose his conduct as less than great. Can you describe some of those moments? Yeah, I mean, they show him, I don't think I mentioned it before, but uh, his enemies in the movie, aside from this group of sadistic villains who go around with axes and just kill random people to create chaos. His enemies are the bureaucracy that tries to impose rules and accountability. Like in that opening scene, the grocery store, I mean, there's like top brass who's really annoyed that he had to, that like that he had to kill the maniac in the grocery store instead of, you know, playing cards with him to calm him down instead. And there's a reporter <laughs> shouting at him like, did you have to use unnecessary force? And those are the people we're supposed to in the audience be mad at. But later on, when we see his tactics at work, not in a life or death situation, you know, not like saving the day in a grocery store, that's when it really comes across that maybe these uh, unorthodox but get results kind of methods that we've sort of been taught as an audience to appreciate, you know, aren't that great. There's a montage of him gathering clues and like the one time we see him reach across over a bar and like yank this guy's shirt towards him, it just seems... There's no context for it. It's just set up as like another thing we're supposed to be rooting him on to get results. And then in a private moment where he's not even, you know, doing any detective work, he sees a parking spot he wants. We don't know if it's his parking spot or just some random one. And he uses his car and rams the other car out of the way. And the guy uh, driving it, it's like pointedly, I think, uh, a, a bunch of Latinos. One of them gets out and confronts Cobra, understandably. And Cobra, like, smacks the cigarette out of his out of his face, tears his shirt in half. Like I said earlier, I think we as the audience are supposed to be like, damn right, Cobra, you know, get the job done. So, yeah, I just think there is a, a reflection of what is in the conversation right now about police brutality, even if it's, you know, not taking a man's life, an innocent, unarmed man. 
if it's just in the day-to-day tactics and the feeling of kind of lawlessness of the people who are enforcing the law that shines throughout this movie in these little moments. Meet Cobra. He does the job nobody wants. Did you use unnecessary deadly force? I used everything I had. Do you know you have an attitude problem? Yeah, but it's just a little one. Do what you have to do to get a lead on this maniac. And if I find him, do what you do best. Stallone is Cobra, the strong arm of the law. Well, I guess Stallone was making a comment on the rise of violent crime in the country and how the judicial system was too lax on violent offenders. Another one of his roles seems to have addressed that. Can you describe who Judge Dredd is? Sure, yeah. Judge Dredd originally was this satirical British comic strip in something called uh, 2000 AD. And uh, it was a character who set in a dystopian future where law enforcers were literally judge, jury, and executioner. So one person confronts you, uh, finds you guilty, and can dispatch with you based on however they see fit. And it's supposed to be ridiculous, and it also kind of parodying, I I think, distinctly American style of law enforcement, and kind of in the vein of, uh, have you seen the original RoboCop? Oh, I, I, I can't remember, but probably a long time ago. There's a a knowing tone about the militarization of police and how over the top it is in that movie that you can't miss the satire or you have to be kind of, I don't know, not looking for it. But yeah, so that it's kind of a similar tone to that with the original concept of Judge Dredd was made in. And then, yeah, 1995, Stallone is in this summer blockbustery movie called Judge Dredd where all traces of satire are just gone. It's just Stallone being another chiseled, rock-jawed, badass <laughs> cop who now has extrajudicial powers to, to kill someone if they rub him the wrong way sufficiently. It's a strange movie. I hadn't seen it since it came out. And uh, watching it now, there is just a kind of jokey tone. He has like a dumb catchphrase. Uh, he'll ask whoever he's confronting a question and whatever they say, he says to nobody, I knew he was going to say that. That happens, I (laughs) kid you not, five times during the movie, at least. But uh, yeah, the movie doesn't have any satire. It just seems sort of like the logical extension of uh, what Cobra might be one day in the future. As part of the character's arc, Judge Dredd then becomes aware of the flawed system where every cop as you said, is a literal judge, jury, and executioner. So what happens after that? Well, you know, not much, really. (laughs) He has this realization only because he himself is framed. So if he can be framed, then you put away a bunch of innocent people uh, over the years. But I guess because it would be not a summer blockbustery movie if that led to some growth and some quiet contemplation about jumping to conclusions. and But so instead of any of that happening, he just saves his own skin. Rob Schneider helps out for some reason. And... Uh, Was this pre-Sandler? This is... Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's hard to remember that Schneider popped before Sandler, but that's sort of <laughs> was the thing that happened, yeah. At the end of the movie, hopefully there's going to be several more Judge Dredd adventures to come, but that didn't happen because nobody saw this thing. <laughs> 
So let's talk about Stallone's role in the 1997 film Copland, which serves as an antidote to the corruption in law enforcement. How does this play out in the movie and why is it significant that Stallone is the actor behind this character? Because, you know, Stallone is coming off of this run over the course of over a decade where he's played Cobra, he's played Demolition Man, Tango and Cash, Judge Dredd. He's played all these uh, these law enforcement roles. And now he's playing this cop in New Jersey. It was a big deal at the time, but he gained like 40 pounds. This is the pre-Christian Bale era so people didn't know how much to be impressed by a 40 pound weight gain yet from a a celebrity but uh yeah you know and he's asked to do more acting than usual you know he's not just like barking his his lines or throwing away these catchphrases he actually has to like uh, invest something himself in the emotionality of this role but bringing the stallone the collective memory of his past roles to it was a big deal because in this movie, it's kind of the same thing as the original Rambo movie, First Blood, where this is a movie about uh, corrupt cops and Stallone sort of taking them on from within the system. Not quite Serpico style, but a little bit of that vein. So it seems like Stallone in this role was returning to his original anti-authoritarian stance with a kind of wary worldview. But then it didn't take, did it? You know, when I started writing this piece, uh, I was doing a lot of research and I was hoping to find that Stallone did this movie Copland as kind of a repudiation of his previous movies. Like he just came to some realization that he didn't like what he was putting out there. But in all the reviews I read and interviews I looked through, it just seemed like he was more trying to repudiate the bloated blockbuster or mindless action movie and do something that was more actorly also. He said he was really excited to work with a hot young director and with people like Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro. And that was the attraction rather than what the movie was saying. And then, you know, he didn't even follow through with that either because as you see, I guess 13 years after Copland is when he starts the Expendables franchise, which is possibly even bigger and dumber than uh, the later Rambo movies, which he also (laughs) brought back as well. But at least we got Creed out of the late period Stallone renaissance. Oh, that's right. And how many Expendables are there? Like seven or eight? (laughs) (laughs) It feels that way. There were three and there's probably going to be a fourth. I bet you can count on it in the next three years. Wow. And it looks like we may be seeing another Cobra coming out sometime soon as well. That was the most disappointing thing for me. I mean... I was happy in terms of the article because it gave me a fun way to end it. But uh, it, I was a little sad for Stallone that he still, as recently as 2019, thinks that character who drives around a car called Awesome 50 is the ideal cop hero for the moment. At least last year, he was considering bringing back in a TV series format. Uh, well, let's hope uh, this year's events have changed things. Well, I guess we'll see. Yep. Thanks for coming on the show, Joe. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizran.